He must be younger than me. He doesn't need the steps. <laughs> I'll give you a welcome to our Saturday evening meeting tonight. Thank you for coming and uh, joining with us in fellowship uh, to listen to the word being administered to us. We're going to start by singing number 659, 659, My Jesus, I Love Thee. I know thou art mine, for thee all the pleasures of sin I resign. My gracious Redeemer, my Saviour art thou, if ever I loved thee, my Jesus, tis now. 659, and we'll stand after the introduction on the organ.
and for the ministry at 6.30 in the evening. And if you have nothing else on at 6.30 in the evening, then you would be more than welcome to join us. His subject is going to be Isaiah chapter 6 tomorrow evening, which begins a series of studies in Isaiah that we are going to do on a Sunday. So we're glad to have Bill and Sheila with us this weekend, and after we've sung this hymn together, we'll just uh, leave the meeting in Bill's hands. The next meeting uh, for us here uh, is our conference, of course, on the 10th of March. And we've got, I was going to say we've got two young brethren coming, but I don't know whether they would consider themselves young anymore, but our brother Michael Wilkie and our brother Andrew Williamson from Inverness are with us at the conference on the 10th of March. So we'll rise after the introduction and sing 525 and then I'll leave the meeting in this hands.
we're going to read this evening in Paul's letter to the Romans, and I want to read a verse or two, first of all in chapter 12, and then we're going to read into chapter 13. I want to talk to you this evening for a little while about the powers that be. And, and I suppose it's true for a good number of us that we live a fair time and we really haven't had much trouble in dealing with the powers that be. It's not been a problem to us. Times change. If you go back to, I suppose, when I was just born, one of the active subjects that was a subject of contention sometimes between brethren was the question of bearing arms. You know, should a Christian take arms or not? If you were conscripted, what did you do? And folk came to a variety of views on that kind of thing. And that's not an issue today, not amongst us. It will be in some parts of the world. But there are issues which are more clear-cut than that, which, of course, I think we need to understand a little bit about and, and how the powers that be are involved in. Let me just illustrate what I have in mind. Who would have thought that running a baker's shop in Ireland would get you into trouble with the law, you know? And yet, you're well aware, I'm certain, that someone coming into the shop and provocatively saying, I want a cake, but it has to be a cake which promotes a certain style of behaviour, which those who were being asked to bake that cake said, well, we believe that's against the word of God, and we believe in the Bible, and we're not willing to do that. And this whole issue of same-sex relationships is one which caused them serious problems. Uh, and that's just an illustration of the kind of thing which can happen. Uh, again, you take a topic like early termination of pregnancy, as they might say, abortion. And you work in the National Health Service? I know some of you do. And, and the position is protected in law for those who have a conscience, but again, you'll be aware that as time goes on, that's being eroded. And there are believers who are being faced with issues that they didn't ever think they would have to face. And there's a question, how do you deal with a topic like that? And of course, even more recently now, I turn back into my Bible and I read that when God made mankind, made man, male and female created he them. Now, let me just preface what I'm saying by this. Because we live in a fallen world, there are children who are born with a variety of problems. I understand that. And some of them, a very small number, could affect the way in which they perceive themselves and could lead to difficulties on the issue of gender. But that's an unusual thing. But we live in a society where, if it suits you, you say, well, I'm, I'm a man, but I'm not wanting to live as a man. I'm, I'm female. And the law is increasingly saying, well, if that's what you say, that's how you'll be treated. And, and here we are as Christians. And the powers that be say things like that are all right. What's our attitude to the powers that be? So you'll see the kind of thing that's been on my mind lately. And I hope as I talk about it for a little while, it will at least you provoke you to think what Scripture has to say about it. And even if you don't agree with what I have to say, it will perhaps help you to think through some of the issues which certainly some of you, I'm certain, will face if the Lord spares you for any time at all. So let's read in Romans chapter 12, first of all, 
And, and we're going to read from verse 17, just two or three verses, and then into chapter 13. So Paul writes, Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. Then into chapter 13. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. For there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Wherefore, therefore resisteth, whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore, you must needs be subject not only for wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For this cause pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers, attending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honour to whom honour. Owe no man anything but to love one another, for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. Then just a verse or two in First Peter, and we'll read in chapter 2, First Peter chapter 2. These are all familiar verses, and we'll remind ourselves of them. And 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 13. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man, for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme, or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God, that with well-doing, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Well, let's see what Scripture has to say and think through what the implications might be. And there are some principles we will take out of these verses, which I think we can still apply and are relevant to us. And there, when you think about what Romans chapter 13 says, words that we all know, the powers that be are ordained of God. I think there are two ideas in that. One of them, a general idea, and one very specific. So, the powers that be are ordained by God. The idea is simply this, to, to understand that God is a God of order. And that God intended that this world should be, I'm going to say organized, should have powers, authorities in it, who would regulate men's behavior. And they ought to do it, from the chapter that we've read, to the glory of God, and with God's word in mind. So there is a general principle which applies not just to the world but, but applies wherever we see God working with a group of people. So in the assembly it's not an anarchy. There is meant to be authority recognised for that is how God expects things to be done. And so when we think about the way in which he, he speaks about the regulation of a local church or an assembly, we understand that this is God saying, this is how I expect men and women to behave. 
And, and so the powers that be are simply a, a grander example in that sense of it. So that there should be, therefore, those who carry authority. And we, we, we find that clearly spelled out there in that. He is a God of order. So, says Paul, all things should be done decently and in order. And we're saying that applies more generally. So there is something general about this, that authorities are those who have authority delegated to them by God. So it's a general principle, but it has a very specific side to it. It's not simply that God has said, I want there to be order in the world. But if I understand correctly what it means, the powers that be are ordained of God, it means that the actual specific powers that are in authority at any time, they are there by God's appointment. Appointment. It is, you know, we had an election not long ago there. The outcome of that, as far as, as the general population was concerned, was uncertain. Maybe, maybe even after it was over it was uncertain, I don't know. But... But I have to tell you that the government that we have is not there by chance. It is there because the powers that be are ordained of God. And, and when you think about that, it's not difficult to get scripture that will underline that and say, well, that's correct. So I take you, for example, to Daniel. And, and you think about that great image that was seen by the king and Daniel has to interpret for him. And he says to him, you are that head of gold. And then he says, from the head of gold, you go down ultimately to feet of iron and clay. Now, do you think that was just because God knew the future and said, well, that's what's going to happen? I don't think that for one minute. It seems to me that very clearly God is saying, this is what I have obeyed. And we know that's true. Later on, you'll remember, Daniel speaks to Belshazzar and he says, you've forgotten what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. He ended up for a while eating grass like one of the animals in the field till he knew that the Most High reigns in the kingdom of men and, and he gives the kingdom to other he wishes. God is able to do that and does it. And so what we understand is that the Most High, our God, rules in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will. So it's, it's, it's a question as you come through history to understand that it is taking place by God's determinate counsel. The purpose of authority is spelled out for us in chapter 13. What God expects men to do with that authority is clearly he expects them to use that authority for good, for the punishment of and the restraint of Evil. So, verse 3 of chapter 13 says this, Rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. So it is quite clear that when men are given authority by God, they are required by him to behave in a way which is righteous, to behave in a way which is good, to behave in a way which restrains and punishes evil. And you are saying to me, well, a lot of the powers that be that I know don't behave like that. They are not a terror to good works, but to the evil sometimes they are a terror to good works. And, and you think about, you know, if you were unfortunate enough to live in North Korea, your circumstances would be very different 
from those that we've enjoyed here. We were reminded in prayer that we've a reason to give thanks for the fact that we're able to meet as we do. As we used to say, no man making is afraid. Not like that in North Korea. And so we understand that in practice, these powers that be don't always behave in the way in which they are intended to do. But that doesn't mean any less that they are ordained by God. Say a little bit more perhaps about it later, but one of the things that does say is they will be held responsible by God for what they do. And there's a day that lies ahead when those who have abused the power that God has given them over their fellow men and women, they will be held to account for it and they will be judged for it. Be in no doubt about that at all. But God uses these powers to accomplish his purpose. And, and so you think, for example, about Assyria. God's people are behaving badly. And God wants to chastise them. And so what does he do? He brings a foreign power against them, the Assyrians. And the Assyrians are God's instrument to bring chastisement on Israel. They overstep the mark. And the Assyrians will be responsible for and answer for the way in which they behave towards Israel. Just exactly as it was when our Lord Jesus was crucified. Delivered by the determinate counsel of God and his foreknowledge. But you took my wicked hands. Wicked hands. So those who did that will be held responsible for abusing the power that they were given. The Jewish authorities, high priests and those around him given authority, which they abused. The Romans, given authority, which they abused. In the overruling counsel of God, used to accomplish something which provides us with our salvation, provides us with our hope of the future, but that does not take away from the guilt of those who behaved as they did. So, leave that for a moment, and then just ask ourselves some questions. If if there are powers that be and they are ordained of God, what is my responsibility as a citizen? Now remember, it is true that you're a citizen of heaven. I'm a citizen of heaven. But I actually, I, at the moment, I'm a citizen, I suppose, of the European community. Maybe not for long, but there you go. And, and you know, the Apostle Paul, he was a citizen. And, and you begin to count it. He was a Roman citizen. Says he, Saul of Tarsus, no mean city, he says, no mean city. And, and, and he was a citizen. And that meant that when he lived as a citizen, well, what does it say? Well, be subject. Be subject. That's what we were taught as we read Romans chapter 13. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained by God. What does that mean? Well, for example, one of the things that is very clearly taught here is paying tribute. Paying tribute just means paying your taxes. So, you know, the Lord Jesus underlined that. As the, the coin is brought, and he says, well, whose, whose image is stamped on it? Caesar's. Well, give to Caesar what belongs to him, and to God what belongs to him. And so it's, it's a, a, a duty that falls to us as citizens to pay our taxes. And it's interesting, isn't it? The use of these taxes is not our problem. The use of them is not our problem. I just pay them. I don't say, well, I'm going to send so much, and I'm going to write to the Chancellor of the Exchequer and say, well, I don't actually agree with 
the nuclear deterrent. I don't know whether you do or not, it doesn't really matter. But, and so I'm going to deduct a certain amount. No. Scripture says, you pay your taxes. And it will be Caesar who is held responsible for how he spends those taxes. You think about Caesar in the day that the Lord Jesus was here. Do you think he spent those taxes in a way that was righteous and honourable? I don't think so. You can go around, some of you I'm sure have been to some of the places where they have these Roman amphitheatres. And the kind of things that went on in these were not the kind of things I would wish to spend my taxes on. But you pay your taxes as a citizen. And the responsibility lies with Caesar as to how he spends them. And indeed, when, when you think about what is said, we read in chapter 12 deliberately, avenge not yourselves. Avenge not yourselves. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. The authorities are required to execute vengeance on behalf of God. Let me explain. Someone you know is murdered. Someone who is related to you is murdered. Do you know who that person was who did the murder? Have you the right to go and execute vengeance? No, says Scripture. That's not your job. The authorities, the powers that be, are meant to execute judgment on behalf of God. And where that has taken place, they are expected to step in and deal with it. But not the private citizen, not the Christian, not you, not me. And vengeance belongs ultimately to God and he delegates that. So, he, so we, we read that. He, he said, you know, in verse 4, If thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. Says, says, says the word of God, God has given to the secular authorities the sword, the sword. That is, the power to execute judgment on behalf of God on evil doing. And it's a power that's given to them by God and they're expected to use it righteously. So, as a Christian, I, I will pay tribute, I will be subject, I won't, I won't avenge myself, I will expect the authorities to behave righteously, and I will, in addition, we read in chapter 12, so far as is possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. As much as lieth in you. Say a bit more about this, probably in a few minutes, but, but don't go out of your way to provoke trouble. <coughs> don't go out of your way to provoke trouble. As much as lieth in you. And so we ought to be those who are seeking to live before God, having prayed for the powers that be, that we might live peaceably with our neighbours and with those around us. And of course the other point that comes out of chapter 13 is that we owe no man anything but to love one another. You say, oh this is very fine. But you've already indicated that you understand that not all authorities behave as they are. Well the first thing I would say to you is this, that's not a surprise. We live in a foreign world. Why should I expect the authorities to be perfect? Because they're just like me, they're sinful. And, and individual people in positions of authority well, that they should show evidence of their fallen nature should not be a surprise to you and to me. And, and indeed, when you think about a fallen man, you remember too, there is an active enemy at work. It's interesting. We understand that there is a power in this world, and that is the devil himself. And he is active. Do you remember what it says 
about Smyrna in Revelation chapter 2. He says, he, The devil shall cast some of you into prison. Wait a minute. <laughs> what actually happened? Well, I've no doubt it was some of the powers that be that knocked at the door and took them off and threw them into prison. Ah, ah, wait a minute, says the word of God. It was the devil that put some of you, it will put some of you into prison. That you may be tried, that you may be tested. There's a purpose in God's overruling will about it. But understand, there is an enemy who is at work in this world, as well as fallen mankind. And so it is not a surprise to me, and should not be to you, that the powers that be fail. Some more than others. But they fail. And so, the question that then comes is, well, is there any limit that I have to set upon that? Is there a limit? Well, we've already thought about the Lord Jesus as he was here speaking and saying, render to Caesar what belongs to him and to God what belongs to him. So God has some inalienable rights which I have got to acknowledge. Well, what kind of example would you give? Well, the most obvious is worship. The most obvious is worship. And so Israel, as they were taught by God through Moses, they came to understand that there was one God. And that God was due worship and no one else was due. And you know how carefully through the scriptures it's made clear that even the greatest of angelic beings, for example, are not to be worshipped. And so you find that when understandably overawed by the majesty and power of some angelic beings, even John, we've quoted from the book of Revelation, he's going to fall and what Don't do that. Don't do that. Worship is only for God. Well, you say, well, that's okay. Well, it wasn't always okay for people. So, one of the earliest martyrs that's recorded in, in history was the man called Polycarp of the second century. And he came from Smyrna. And he was accused of being a Christian. And he was burned at the stake for refusing to burn incense to the emperor and to say Caesar is Lord. And there was one of the Roman emperors put out an edict that all must perform a sacrifice to the Roman gods. He wasn't asking a lot, you know, just for a sacrifice, a pinch of incense. That's all. And if you don't, and of course, how did Christians behave? Well, some were martyred. Some yielded. Don't be too hard on them. You've never had to face it, standing there with a wife and children at home and being told, just a pinch of incense. That's all. That's all. And some hid. Some just absented themselves and got out of the way. And and it's interesting, isn't it? And again, you can turn to Scripture and see it illustrated. We talked about Daniel. Daniel's a good book to illustrate some of these things. So Daniel chapter 3, these men say, We will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image. They said that God was able to deliver them, but if not... You know, you've known that story like me. Well, some of us went to Sunday school and we heard the story of the fiery furnace, you know. And we know that they got off, you know, God got them out of it. Ah, but wait a minute. At the moment when they had to make up their minds, they did not know what was going to happen. 
As they look back in their history, they could say, well, our nation has so failed that God has brought us down here in the Babylon. And we know that he has the power to do that, but we know that he didn't stop the Babylonians taking us away. So if not, we're willing to go through the fiery furnace. And I may be, I may be wrong, but I think they probably expected that the fiery furnace would be what they faced. And, and they, they knew that God could deliver them, but they were, they were willing to accept the fact that if need be, they would go in, and they did go into the fiery furnace. They did go into it. And, and so, as we think about what they did, they, we read it and we know what the outcome was. They said it without knowing what the outcome would be. And so what we're saying is, here was a red line. Here the state, the authorities, the powers that were asking something and they said, no, that's a step too far. Remember, people like Daniel and these young men were operating in a society which, believe me, was not any better than ours. It's a mistake to think otherwise. As we, we understand, it was an idolatrous society. And they lived righteously before God within it. And most of the time it would appear they did not run foul of that authority. But as I say, there were red lines. He said, no. And worship that idol? No. It's interesting, isn't it? I often think about it. Where was Daniel? Well, for whatever reason, he wasn't there. He wasn't there. So when all the noise sounded and everybody bowed down before it, there were just the three men left standing and Daniel wasn't there. I'm quite certain he would not have bowed down. But that's interesting. There was an opportunity for... Daniel could have said, well, I suppose I better go there. Take a stand alongside Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. But he didn't. He was not there. And the Lord made it possible for him not to face that particular test. But those three men who did face it, they were quite clear that they would not bow down to that idol. It's interesting. So it does begin to set a bound. Submit to every ordinance of man, says Peter. Well, conscience is one of the reasons that's given in Romans chapter 13 for obedience to the law. Since I would be defying God's ordinance if I refuse to obey, but it can also be a reason for refusing to obey the law. Because men will ask me to do something which will infringe my conscience before the Lord himself. Now it's interesting, isn't it? We've talked about Peter. And Peter is the man who is said to us, you know, submit to every ordinance of man. And you're saying to me, but just a minute, brother. Don't you remember Acts chapter 4? And Peter is there. And he's before the Jewish council. And they say, enough of this preaching about Jesus and the resurrection. Let's have no more of that. And says Peter, whether it be right to hearken unto you more than God, you have to judge. We ought to obey God rather than men, they say in chapter 5. So, there came a moment when Peter, whom we've said, says we have to obey, says now, there's a red line. I'm not going to step across that. I am not willing to obey you rather than God. So if you are asking something which is directly contrary to what God has said, then we part company. And, and they were willing to suffer. In fact, 
that they thought it was it was a sign of God's favour, you know, that they were asked to accept shame for the name of Christ. But really, we're saying to is is that all? Simply to be defiant and to accept the consequences. Now, let me step back a bit and say there are some things as Christians you can do, which I think have to be borne in mind. First of all, I, I, I think it's important to us to understand that there are freedoms that we have which we are entitled to use. Freedoms which we have. So, here's Paul. And, and they're taking his shirt off to beat him. And he says, just a minute. Do you understand I'm a Roman citizen? you remember he's thrown into prison in Philippi and the next morning the magistrates send some lackey around to say well off you go and he says wait a minute no 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 you put us in here uncondemned Roman citizen tell them to come and send us out if they like and so Paul used the freedoms that he had and said you are breaking your own law and therefore I'm challenging you and he did it not for himself. I hope you understand that. Like Paul was quite willing to be in prison in Philippi or anywhere else for that matter. But there was a, a group of young Christians. Do you know what I mean by young Christians in that sense? And, and what would they face if Paul thrown into prison and then thrown unceremoniously out of town? They'd maybe think twice when Paul had said, I'm a Roman citizen. And they said, well, maybe we should treat these folk just a wee bit more carefully than we might otherwise have done. So... When, when Paul used those freedoms, he used them for the furtherance of the gospel. I think that was in his mind when he said, I appeal to Caesar, and he gets to Rome. We know it was the overruling hand of God that meant he was able to do what he longed to do, to preach the gospel in Rome also. So, I, I think there are times when there are freedoms that we have which we are entitled to use. Secondly, there are occasions when it is, it is possible for us, I'll put it this way, to use the influence we have. Now, let me explain what I have in mind. Let me give you a couple of examples. Again, from the Old Testament. Here is Nehemiah, and he's very worried about Jerusalem. Things are in a bad state, and he'd love to be able to do something to help. He's a cupbearer to the king. And he appears before the king, and the king says, Nehemiah, why are you looking so sad? You look miserable. Now, Nehemiah was afraid, it says. But you remember, that's that lovely. It says, he prayed, he spoke to God, and spoke to the king. And because of that, he, he just took the... I'll explain to the king why I'm miserable. It's because of it. And because of that, he took an opportunity to use the influence he had at court, which led to some of the people returning to the land. It was the beginning of the return. It was the beginning of things being re-established back there in Jerusalem. As there was an opportunity, he just grabbed it. He had influence which he was able to bring to bear. And I think that's the kind of thing which sometimes happens. You, you think about another case. Here's Esther. And Mordecai says to her, Esther, the people are in deadly danger. The Jewish people. Because of Haman, Haman intended to do what the Nazis were not able to do. 
He intended to exterminate the Jewish people. Bear no doubt about that. He wanted every last one of them to be slaughtered. Every last one. Mordecai says, now listen, you have to go into the you must go into the king and make supplication unto him and make requests before him for your people. And she has a position of favour with the king. And he says, You've got to use that. Says Mordecai, and if you don't, God will find someone else to do it. I, I find that interesting. Because I might have said, Well, how do you know that the Lord is intending for that not to happen? Well, the Lord did not intend his people to be exterminated. I think Mordecai knew that. And he knew that if Esther didn't do it, the Lord would find some way of, of making sure his people survive. But the point I'm making is this. He said to Esther, perhaps you're, you're in this place for such a time as this. Such a time as this. And so we know that in fear and trembling, and having said to Mordecai, I'll do it, but listen, tell the people to fast on my behalf before God and, and, and I'll do that and she did and God wonderfully worked and you know what happened in the book of Esther and if you don't remember go and read it later so I would say to you Nehemiah seized an opportunity she made an opportunity it's a kind of tough thing to do now I know that it doesn't happen to everyone all the time but, but I have to tell you there are folks who have places of influence and authority I can think of Christians who work in Edinburgh every day in contact with Scottish Government ministers. And, and knowing them, I'm certain that from time to time when certain policies are open for discussion and they have an opportunity, they will use their influence for good. And there are times when others of us may have the opportunity to use influence. might not be any great thing we're able to do but just to use our influence for good. And so Esther and Nehemiah are examples of folk who used their influence and used it for good. And I, I've said about the Apostle Paul using the freedoms that he had, and he used them to make sure that he was able to take forward the gospel in a way which would bring blessing to others as he sought to use the protection which was his as a Roman citizen. You know, one of the things that always struck me when I read the life, reading the life of Paul is the way in which God expects us to use the means that are available to us and not to sit back and say, well, the Lord will overrule and do what he wishes. I often think about that final shipwreck, you know. And Paul has been told by the Lord, there shall be no loss of life. That's in Acts chapter 27, verse 22. No loss of life. You come to verse 31, and you'll remember what had happened was some of the sailors were getting into the wee boat and were going to cast off from the big one, and, and they were going to abandon the folks who were in the big boat to their fate, because they, the sailors, could make their way in the little boat. And just therefore, a few verses later, Paul says, except these abide in the ship, you cannot be saved. And Paul could have sat back and said, well, daughter has told me what's going to happen, so I just... He, he, was, he used means, he used the opportunity that was there to make sure that he was acting in a way that was consistent with what he understood God's word to be. So, it's important that we use care in those freedoms. I said to you earlier that we, we as much as possible live peaceably with all men. Do you remember the riot in Ephesus? 
or who would forget the riot in Ephesus? And, and I know, I've had the, the privilege of being in Ephesus and seeing the amphitheater there where, where the Christians, not Paul, he wasn't among them, that's the point I'm coming in a moment, there they were, and the crowd howling, green is Diana of the Ephesians, hour after hour. It's interesting that when, in our authorised version, it's the man who's the town clerk, whatever his title really was, it doesn't matter, but he was a man in authority. And first of all, I want you to notice that speaking about Paul and his companion says, these men are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. I found that interesting. I judge that what that means is that when Paul and his companions went around Ephesus preaching, they didn't start out by having a go at the goddess Diana. No. They preached positively Christ. That's what they did. And, and you'll remember, as Paul is in Athens, he said, I saw an altar to the unknown God, whom you ignorantly worship, I'm going to tell you about him. He didn't say all the other ones and have a go at them. He said, I'm going to tell you positively. I'm going to talk to you positively about the God whom I know. And before he's finished, of course, it's quite clear that he's taught them that there is only one God. The one in whom we live and move and have our being. So, he's not going to dilute what he believes in any sense at all. But, but when he preaches, he'll do it in a way which does not unnecessarily provoke a reaction. We know he provoked a reaction from, you know, the silversmiths. Uh, and it was because of money. But, but he didn't go out of his way to bring trouble on his own head or that of others. So Paul was true to the gospel, and he didn't, therefore, as I say, he was neither a robber of a church nor a blasphemer of your goddess, but it's interesting. When that riot took place, Paul wasn't in amongst those who had been taken by the crowd into the amphitheatre. They wanted to go. They wanted to go. And I said to him, no, Paul, don't. Don't, 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 don't go there. And he didn't. And that was wise. It would appear that the brethren there said to Paul, you'll be like a red rag table. Just don't go there. There's enough trouble really for the town clerk to deal with. And so, Paul having preached wisely, not having provoked trouble unnecessarily, nor was he going to go and adventure himself in the theatre, as the language of the scripture is. He would behave wisely in a way that did not add to the strength. Remember, it's interesting. I'm thinking about Peter in, in Acts chapter 12. Peter's in prison. Do you remember? Herod has found that actually it's quite a good idea to execute one of these fellows because the crowd like it. And so James, the brother of John, executed. Peter's in prison. And we'll bring him out. And Peter's lying there fast asleep. And, and you remember what happens? He's wakened up, taken out, doors are all opened. And, and he goes along to the house where the folks are praying. And uh, Rhoda comes to the door and can't believe her eyes. And the folk inside can't believe either. What did Peter do? Did he go back to the prison door and say, excuse me, I think you might be looking for me. <laughs> I'm the guy that escaped. No, no, that's not what it says. It says 
he departed and went into another place. They found him not, and the keepers were punished severely. Some of them were put to death because they had lost such an illustrious prisoner. So what I'm saying to you is, here is Peter, and God has got him out of prison, and he understands that therefore the Lord wants to preserve him for his work. And so he went to another place. It's interesting when you think about that. He didn't refuse, he didn't say to the angel, well, I'm, you know, I'm going to stay here, out he goes. And he doesn't volunteer to go back. Now it's interesting too, you think about John 11. The Lord Jesus, it says, he walked no more openly. They sought for Jesus. Commanded, if any man knew where he were, he should show it. And the Lord Jesus, in view of the cross, and knowing exactly when his hour would come, he absented himself for a time from Jerusalem, out of the way. <coughs> he did not provoke trouble unnecessarily. There came a point when he would go up to Jerusalem, and he would be very open and public. <coughs> and ultimately, the cross lay before him. I understand that fully. But I'm simply saying that there was at that point as the Lord Jesus understood the will of his Father he understood that this was not the time to go up to Jerusalem this was a time to move quietly out of the public sight and to make sure that when the hour did come he would be ready for that hour so one of the things I am saying is that we don't unnecessarily take a stand. So, back to Daniel. Now I'll finish in a moment or two. We've already said that Daniel wasn't there when they all bowed down to the idol. He would not have bowed down. Another occasion when he wasn't there was in chapter 5. You remember Belshazzar's feast? Well, can you imagine that they wouldn't have invited Daniel? Very important, well-known man. He wasn't there. Because... And in place it wasn't there. Good example. And, and when the writing was up on the wall, they had to go and find him. And he knew what the writing meant. And, and when that did happen, he didn't know what the reaction of Belshazzar would be. Here's God's word. Your kingdom is going to be taken. That night was Belshazzar, king of the Chaldean slain. And you'll understand what I mean when I say, for all Daniel knew, just to tell him what God's word said could have meant death. But he told them what God's word said. So he did not unnecessarily go about looking for trouble, but when the time came, and here was a message from God, he just told them, said, that's what God says, there it is. And you know that when he was challenged over the matter of prayer, he would not change what he did because of what man did. It wasn't that Daniel never ever prayed with the window open and when the problem came he said well I'm going to do it now just to make sure everybody knows. No, Daniel always did that. He always prayed and he always prayed with the window so that folk knew that that was why the problem started. They knew that Daniel prayed and he wouldn't change what he did just because of that. And again Daniel ended up in the den of lions. We know he was preserved. 
There he was. And he faced that problem. And it would have been so easy to say, well, I could keep praying, but I could just close the curtain, you know. But no. He took that open stand. And, and there he was as the challenge came. He was able to show his loyalty to the God whom he served. And God upheld him in that. I'm almost finished. I, I did want to read Vengeance is Mine, saith the Lord. And, and here I might tread on a wee bit thin ice, but you'll allow me to do that. <coughs> the authorities bear the sword. We don't. We don't. I don't know what kind of army they could have put together at Smyrna, you know. The Lord never encouraged them to put an army together at Smyrna. <coughs> Quite rightly, at the moment, folk are thinking over the last 500 years of the Reformation, and there were great things happened then, and I wouldn't want to belittle them. But just don't get carried away over much in your enthusiasm. Because during that period of the Reformation, thousands were slaughtered. Protestants, Protestants by Catholics. Catholics by Protestants. Protestants by Protestants. And some of the things that happened were a shameful blot on the name of Christ. And it's important for us to remember when we're looking at those things that, yes, you can find in Scripture, if you pull it about and do this, that, some justification perhaps that you think will justify what you're doing. But I don't think you can read the passages we've read and bear the sword in the way in which these men did. So they thought about heretics. And if you were a heretic, that meant you didn't agree with them. And they were burnt at the stake and slaughtered. And they were done, these things were done in the name of Christ. And it's dreadful to think about. And so while there are good things that happened then, and there were doctrines taught and written down which are for our encouragement and for our help, just remember that when you think about these things, bear in mind, it was never God's intention in our dispensation for his people to bear the sword. And we should remember that. And as we said, it's the devil that puts men in prison. Well, what can you say about these things? I don't know what will face some of the younger folk here. Problems that I didn't have to face, I acknowledge that. And when you come to them, it will ultimately be a matter of your conscience before the Lord. And if some of the principles that we've looked at are of help, go and look at them again. Remember this, says that same Peter who wrote about obeying all these ordinances. If any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Let him glorify God. And as we've already alluded to, the apostles in Acts 5 departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And you know, and I know, that around the world tonight there are believers who are suffering, martyrdom in many cases still, for the name of Christ. And they glorify God in doing so. That's what the Lord said to Peter. He, he gave him an idea of the death by which 
he would glorify God. Plus God will bless these few remarks and trust you find them helpful. Let's pray. Our God, as we think of the world that we live in, that we lament so often that not only far away from us, but close to us, those around us seem to have lost any fear of thyself and have been putting in place things that we believe are so contrary to thy word. And we look for help and guidance day by day for ourselves as we live in a society that's so far from thee. Help us to live in a way which honours thee and perhaps will lead some to answer questions that bring them ultimately to know the Lord Jesus as Saviour. We do pray for those believers who are in positions where they are able to exercise influence. We, we do pray thy care and preserving grace over them. Grant help to them as they seek to do so. And should the Lord be not come, we pray for younger folk amongst us that they might be helped to live peaceably with all men and to live honourably before thee and that they might be given the grace to know and to understand just what to do when times of testing and trial come. We pray thy blessing upon each one here. We thank thee for the opportunity of being around thy word. We thank thee for the opportunity of a little time of fellowship and for refreshments that have been provided. We accept them all as from thy good and gracious hand as we offer our thanksgiving and our praise and our worship in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.